0: Welcome to ColoniaCast episode 13. Today's going to be a really cool one. Um, Obviously, just got to get our our kind of sponsors out of the way here. Thanks to the Turtle Room for supporting us with kind of startup resources for this. And uh, we're really excited to uh, kind of, I I guess, give a little update on the uh, ColoniaCast student research fund that we're hoping to start up. Uh, We'll be kind of at some point shortly here setting up something through the Turtle Room website where you can Uh, donate to a fund that we're going to hopefully build up to support uh, student research at the college and potentially pre-college level, depending on kind of the project proposal. Uh, So be on the lookout for that. But obviously, thanks for all that. And we've got some other people that are sort of potentially going to sponsor it. uh, And we're working on the deals there. So some cool stuff to look out for. Um, Today's going to be a really cool one, but we're going to kind of go through a little bit of a what we've all been up to shortly here uh, today, I was out um, actually talking with uh, some cinematographers about doing a documentary on the Western pond turtles or Southwestern pond turtles that we have uh, in Southern California that I've researched for the past few years. Uh, so hopefully we're going to do something there and talk to some of the USGS people that, that work out here and document the the invasive, in, the invasion of the sliders and how that's potentially impacting pond turtles. So something kind of cool there. Now, I know that Jack had quite a day today, and it's amazing that he's even on here, and then Jason, Jason's joining us today. Ken could not make it, but uh, what's up, guys? How have you guys been?
1: Well, uh, my day was interesting since I've been up since probably 5.30 in the morning, and I had only a little bit of sleep last night because, well, last night I was really excited because I had prepared all of my gear, and I was I was about out to drive about three, three and a half hours to go search for bog turtles. And uh, the conditions couldn't have been any better. It was perfect. And uh, the chances I've had in the past to look for them, uh, while we found other species, uh, it was too cold for the bog turtles to be out. So today I was like, I was driving up there and I was like, oh, we're going to get them. The conditions are perfect. And uh, about an hour and a half through, uh, while I'm driving through the most dangerous part of Delaware, like Wilmington is uh, not a nice city by any means and uh the car just breaks down like uh, it, it the engine starts billowing smoke and the, the wheel locks up and i can i can hear something blew out and fell across the road that's i right. and it starts it's leaking fluid everywhere and it smells like burning rubber and i'm like oh that's bad so uh part of me was like can i just force like i could still technically drive like it was still moving. and break down a site, but it was not going to happen. It, it was good. It was good. guard. Right, I got to get off to it. I got to get the nearest and just get out of there. And, uh, well, I ended up in a really sketchy area for like seven for, uh, to, for the insurance wasn't going to be of any help. So I had to have my dad bring him to get my, but, uh, we actually, once we looked at the car, we figured out we just, it was a pretty, but, uh, it, my, I didn't get to go look for bog turtles and I'm not going to get that chance again for a while. Uh yeah, that that was that was rough, but at least I'm here now. So. So, I guess we're good. <laughs> the the, the trial <laughs> <up> another day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, the yeah. the trials of of trying yeah. to get to do My course. car picks-
1: it's a really busted up old. It's a 2004 Jeep Liberty, and it's not in good shape. It has like 300,000 miles on it, and and uh, it, it's it, we have to replace parts fairly often. Like one of the axles broke not long ago. So, uh, we fixed that, and, and uh, it's like a zombified at this point. Like Michael's seen it, and when he saw it, it was in a it, bit of a better state than it is now. But uh, it is
0: it is the yeah, reptile mobile.
1: I actually did get, in the state of Delaware, I got the plate that says, rep I got the reptile plate. Like, my license plate is the one, so <laughs> if you're in Delaware and you, you see a blue Jeep with a reptile, uh, you think you figure out who it is. You found Jack
0: Thompson. How about you, Jason? How have you been?
1: Uh,
2: busy, like, more than anything. Uh, you know, the semester's starting to wrap up. I think, like, my last final May 11th, and then I started uh, interning at the Turtle Survival Alliance's uh, Turtle Survival Center, like the preceding or like May 15th. So, kind of a mix of trying to wrap things up school wise and then also get things organized because I'll be gone uh, like for, I think, a few months. So, just, you know, busy, you know, wrapping things up and getting things ready for, uh, you know, when I leave.
0: Cool. Yeah. We're all sort of, I guess, seniors in high school are getting ready to go on to junior year in college. So, we're all kind of at that the end of the year phase here. So today we're really excited because we have um, Evo Gross, who is currently a PhD student at Auburn University, uh, who studies dime-back terrapins and also I think has done a lot of other herp work in the past. Uh, joining us today, he's going to talk all about I guess just some of the stuff that the cool stuff that he's done. Uh, and we're super excited to have you on, Evo. So thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be on. This is really exciting. Oh, yeah. Kind of like a cliched in, but uh, Jack, do you want to run with the first squad?
0: Take care of yeah, yourself. He's out, got right. that dog sitting uh, live on air. You never know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> He's, so Jason's, Jason's get dog
1: by a, by a dog in the background. But uh, so we kind of a, like, like you said it's a pretty cliche question but uh, uh like why turtles or herps in general like what you got what really got you interested oh gosh um it seems like <laughs> I uh I
2: think my um uh, my baptism by fire story um came uh came a little bit later than um um than I than a lot of herpetologists that I know who are you know like from you know from birth they were moving through the mud. I, um, I, uh, initially started with snakes. My, uh, my big interest was, uh, was with snakes. This is like my junior, senior year. And I found some, this is Northern Illinois, kind of around Chicago. So I found some water snakes. I didn't know what they were. So I did the, I did the dumb kind of TV, you know, herpetologist thing and tried to, uh, you know, pin behind the head and, and, and grab behind the, and grab the nape and try to identify this thing based on you know the presence of fangs and inevitably i got bitten by it and i tried to suck out the venom which wasn't there um and i think that uh (laughs) i think that lack of knowledge really kind of set me googling um just about snakes in general and, and and into herps in general and um that's really where it started um but my big Baptism by fire was during my undergrad, and I uh, in my freshman year I, I started doing undergraduate research with Steve Mullen at Eastern Illinois University. He's now chair of biology at Arkansas State University, I believe, um, but he was sort of my, I guess my herpetology father, uh, and he kind of introduced the idea of yeah doing independent research on on snakes and and, and, and turtles and well, very interesting you know critters um professionally um and not just sort of focusing on kind of pre-professional tracks, like you know towards becoming a veterinarian or you know going into medicine or or something you know involving involving a lot of humans um uh and turtles just sort of were kind of along the way um just did just kind of generally you know learn to ID and, and and capture um capture them and um had a couple of interesting. Actually, right before starting the PhD, I worked with Desert Forces a little bit um, through the Great Basin Institute. That was a very exciting couple of months, and um, yeah, just some other sort of general, general sort of short-term jobs with with and, and some others. And yeah, I think uh, getting the PhD was very, very exciting. Sort of combination of of having <laughs> experience with with field work and working with turtles and also kind of um, obviously other, you know, other in, in uh, interests in generally in ecology and, and evolutionary biology. Um, so are trying to, big part of my PhD is trying to combine kind of evolution, evol- evolutionary ecology and, and conservation and um, and, and approaching, approaching my questions sort of with those sorts of impl- implications. Yeah.
0: That's, that's awesome. That's, that's a cool thing. And so you went to Eastern Illinois for undergrad and wh- what did you, did you major in evolutionary biology or what? what?
2: Yeah, it was just a uh, straight biology um, at Eastern. Uh, did some, yeah, undergraduate research with, uh, with Steve Mullen on, um, did some work with Ambystoma xanum with smallmouth salamanders, um, some interesting stuff looking at uh, limb deformities and, and ectoparasitism, uh kind of around agricultural runoff and uh, just sort of looking at those implications there um so my final project was on brown snakes so we're looking just at very much conservation focused just looking at road mortality um, it was generally very cryptic animals that twice a year kind of moved in droves like in mass they had very big migrations through this kind of measly little state park um, so we had a really good opportunity to get a really good sample of a very cryptic population. Um, after graduating there, I, um, I, I had the opportunity to work on a, an REU, or as, as an REU student research experience for undergraduates um, in China with uh, uh, Dr. Yong Wang, who's a, prof- a full professor at Alabama A&M University. Uh, and that sort of experience. Um, kind of got me interested in the lab, the work that he was doing in his own lab. So for my master's, I worked with him, uh, not in China, unfortunately, in, in Northern Alabama, working with copperheads, looking at microhabitat selection and sort of neonatal, like newborn, um, snake ecology specifically. Um, so I think that interest in kind of maternal, maternal effects, nest site selection and, um, uh, and just generally in kind of neonatal ecology, sort of, uh, they've directed my interests moving forward, moving into this degree
0: as well. That's cool. I I so you're in COSAM at Auburn. Is that am I correct there? Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I I'm a senior. Jack and I are both seniors, and Jason is a sophomore in college who. Is getting attacked by a dog right now, but uh, (laughs) so I in my process for looking for colleges, I actually went to to Auburn to interview at Cosam back in April of 2021. So it's a yeah, it's an amazing program. I mean, it's uh, I I I think I'll probably end up at either UGA or University of Florida, but it was an amazing program, and and you can't go wrong. (laughs) So it's 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 yeah, but um, yeah, so. It's cool that you've kind of had this, I guess, diversity of experiences with herps uh, and and some of the work that you've done in the past. I, I wasn't even aware of it uh, with, with the microhabitat selection. That sounds very interesting. Um, so we're curious, too. So now for part of your, I guess, Ph.D. thesis, you've been working on turtles, as you said, uh, particularly looking at, I believe, diamondback terrapins. Um, maybe you could give us a little overview of kind of that project and, and where you're doing it and kind of maybe some, some of the stuff you've learned, if, if some of that is some things you want to share, I guess, I know that can be kind of under wraps, but uh, just, I guess, give us a little rundown of some of that.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, Auburn university is in Alabama, uh, and we have a very small coastline, um, kind of in between Mississippi and and Florida. Uh, and one of the sort of the jewels of the Alabama coast is Dauphin Island, Alabama. Um, Auburn has a, well, I guess the, the state has kind of a, a research consortium uh, that sort of developed into um, the um, Dauphin Island Sea Lab. Um, so there's a lot of work that's sort of funneled through several several public universities in Alabama that is then kind of um, yeah, funneled into, funneled into Dolphin Island and a lot of work occurs there. So that was, I think, a big draw for my advisor, Matthew Wolak, um, to, to apply here and to, uh, and to um, kind of develop a, a program and a research group here at Auburn is kind of that opportunity to have uh, obviously be sort of centrally located, nice, very close to Atlanta and, and, and uh, other natural areas in, in Alabama, but also to have that kind of, good really, cool, really cool collaboration on the coast. Uh, and his work during his undergrad, he was at the college, he was at Will, uh, William & Mary up in Virginia, Will, in Williamsburg. Uh, a lot of his, well, his undergraduate research was on Terrapin. So I think that was um, kind of a, a good opportunity for him to get back to his roots. So he brought me on sort of as um, the, I guess the field the applied branch of uh, his quantitative genetics lab, um, so it involves a lot of a lot of seed beetles, a lot of um, work with invertebrates that have very short generation times, um, but there are these sort of very interesting questions that have never been answered with terrapins because they have very long generation times and it's not it's not the easiest study system to work with. Uh, and to answer these questions, but it's, you know, it's sort of, there's a hole there. There's um, uh, information that we don't know about, you know, kind of these, these longer lived organisms. So, so yeah, sort of the, he kind of hired me to, to catch as many terrapins as possible and and develop a a project that could be sort of parallel to, to uh, his own interests. as I said before, really big interest in kind of maternal ecology and and, and nesting ecology in these organisms. Um, so my work really focuses a lot around um, the nests and, and the nesting beaches uh, of these terrapins. We're really interested in being able to, first of all, find the nests, um, but then do a lot of um, really interesting, we'll collect DNA samples from from the nests from the hatchlings. and potentially get some maternal uh, DNA from the from the eggshell tissues um, so we can sort of answer some population genetic questions but also questions looking at um, um, sexual selection looking at mate choice um, at the sort of at the identity and the number of, of fathers um, contributing to each clutch uh, and how the of amounts of multiple paternity across different beaches might you know influence the sort of conservation uh i guess you could call it value for different beaches um in most cases you know you're just thinking the the more nests the better but there may be some cases where having two beaches with a similar number of nests um, you'd expect there to be similar diversity there but if there are if the population sex ratios are are skewed in one direction or the other for for either of the beaches, you can see kind of differences in, in genetic diversity between those two. So um, that's a big, uh, I guess that's sort of the conservation related related questions um, that I'm interested in. And um, yeah, kind of um kind of more towards just looking at like the evolutionary questions. Yeah, I do have a big interest in Looking at kind of the sexual selection in this species, it's uh, it's difficult to do. Unlike with birds or with you know more terrestrial organisms or with fruit flies, you can't we don't have access to. Um, well, they they live in chocolate milk basically. You know these are these are estuarine species, so they live in um, very muddy waters, and and we can't see who is mating with whom. Um, we can't see sort of what sort of mating system it is, whether there's any sort of male-male competition. All of this is sort of a mystery. There's some information out there, but uh, you know, from from like lab ob- lab observations, but um, and some really you know very important anecdotal accounts in the field. But those are sort of few and far between. So, um, short of getting some sort of you know amazing imagery, a lot of drones. A lot of drones. we interested in kind of sussing out the the mating systems and the evolutionary and conservation implications of those mating systems, just based on just doing DNA tests, basically doing paternity tests. So I do a lot of, I guess the Maury show just recently ended, but I do a lot of Mori, you know, who is the father, who isn't the father. Um, that's going to be sort of the big, big question for, for a lot of my dissertation chapters.
0: That's. That's a really interesting work. And I think that a lot of, when you look back through some of the literature on, I guess, just sexual selection and and multiple paternity and I, I guess turtle sort of reproductive strategies, it seems like there is kind of a call for looking at, I guess, kind of how multiple paternity influences how females are nesting. So with your work, are you looking at kind of I guess with turtles, maybe we could take a step back. Um, yeah. when you think about multiple paternity and the the sort of fitness effect that it can have on turtles, there's sort of a lack of in other animals, a lot of that multiple paternity is beneficial for the female, right? Because you can have multiple males maybe more protection afforded to the organism, or you can have multiple males kind of collaborating to help the female in some way through kind of the, mm-hmm. I think it's like nuptial gifts is, is maybe the terminology for that. But mm-hmm. with turtles, that's not really the case. So what is sort of the benefit of multiple paternity in, in, in turtle species? Like, what would you say?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the, um, yeah, but that's, that's a really great background. Yeah. Turtles are, and reptiles in general, it's, it uh, yeah, they don't have sort of the, a lot of the, I guess the, I don't want to say cliche because it's all very interesting interactions and they don't have, you know, more of those kind of um, uh, tried and true strategies or, or benefits to, to multiple paternity. Um, some of the uh, big ones that, uh, that we're starting with, that we're looking into um, are sort of going back to basics. Um, one big one is simply that there's always an assumption that a single male is, is capable of copulating or is capable of fertilizing. Um, just, I mean, all of the, the the entire clutch of a, of a single female, but that might not always be the case. There's there's a risk, you know, potentially that certain males are infertile. Um, so there's a benefit to multiple paternity or I guess a benefit to, to polyandry, to, to having multiple suitors, to having multiple mates. You know, you can hedge your bets and and potentially mate with, you know, multiple males so that you can, you know, have a, a surplus, if anything, of um, of sperm to, you know, to fully, and uh, um, so you have to fully fertilize your clutches. Um, some other, so that's, yeah, that, that's one of the, the basic ones that we're looking into. Um, getting more into kind of the more, the more interesting questions that uh, might be a little bit further down the road for us is looking at um, whether females are capable of kind of differentiating the the quality of the males that they're mating with, um, or of the, the sperm that is being, um, um, you know, produced by those males, whether um, whether there's any sort of, on the part of females, selection for, you know, copulating with certain males over others, because they're, because they're larger, because they're fitter, maybe because they're smaller and more agile and more capable of know, populating with a female in kind of this three-dimensional, anti-gravity environment. Um, whether there is any sort of uh, coloration, whether females are, you know, selecting for more vibrantly colored males. Um, I think there's been some, some work with terrapins showing that there's, uh, con- there's uh, it's important, or certain males are selected for that have higher contrast in the coloration. Um uh, between their shells and between the skin, so like a really dark shell and a really bright um, bright skin pigmentation. Um, uh, were males with those with that sort of coloration were showing, were shown preference for. so um, if uh, if females were able to kind of figure that out to be able to distinguish between you know, sexier males um, versus you know less sexy males then, her offspring could then have an advantage moving forward. If, you know, if she were to produce, again, this is not my term, it's if they're, if she were to produce sexy sons, kind of in the image and likeness of their father, then she could indirectly have an indirect fitness benefit by increasing the fitness or by having very fit um, sons. Um, So that's the, yeah, the sexy sons hypothesis. It's, It's had, you know, some mixed support, um i don't think there's been much work again not much work on that with turtles because it's very difficult to, to figure out parentage but um that's uh that's a, that's the direction that we're really, really interested in moving in in figuring out ways to to differentiate to identify paternity uh and to identify sex ratios of, of hatchling turtles which right now is very very difficult to do um but there's been some work on kind of developing a blood test uh, to identify certain hormones um, at the at the hatchling stage that can differentiate males and females. Um, so yeah, that's that's the uh, that's the holy grail for this project. Um, unfortunately, I might have to you know just be laying the groundwork at this point. But um, it's. Uh, Again, you know, working with turtles, it's, uh, it's going to be kind of a, a career long sort of, uh, um, hopefully a, a career long sort of a project working with, you know, individual populations for, for the long-term. Um, cause that's the sort of questions that working with turtles allows you to answer kind of long-term, um, long-term questions like that.
0: That's It's pretty interesting. There's a lot there. And I think that, like that, that overview is good in terms of the idea of multiple paternity being beneficial in turtles is I think mostly genetic, the basis for why it's, it's something that could be beneficial. Like you said, if you've got multiple males, the likelihood that something's going to go awry is kind of less likely there. And then maybe Mm -hmm. if you get lucky or you're attracted to one, that's kind of the most, the fittest of the bunch, then you kind of, I mean turtles can store sperm right you could actually hold on to that for multiple different years or clutches within one season and potentially kind of exploit that 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 fit individual th- th- those beneficial genes i guess um, but that's fascinating i mean the idea that the terrapins can distinguish between the the colors that i guess the sexy sun or that's not the sexy sun but the idea that, that the sexier males i guess are the ones that that are more appealing is interesting. At the same rate, um, I I do tend to think sometimes that perhaps like the physical uh, kind of idea as humans, I think we typically think like that because we're really kind of prone to physical differentiation. But with turtles, I mean, would there be some way that just within the sperm itself, there is some way that the female could detect something that signified that these genes that are being passed on from this male are kind of more uh fit than, than a different animal like would that be something that's purely physical or could there be some chemical cue potentially
2: yeah i mean um certainly could be some chemical cue um i know it um i'm trying to think uh there's some really cool work that suggests that there might be um uh differences in genetic compatibility yeah, so like the kind of the, the the sexy sons argument assumes that all females or that the uh, that the trait that is attractive or that is you know reflective of of high fitness, of high quality for, for any given male, is that it's kind of a, a trait that is found to be similarly attractive to a to the vast majority of, of the female population. Otherwise, you know, you'd have females who prefer whatever duller males and you have females who prefer more vibrant males and that's sort of like will equal out in in, in the uh, in the end and you won't you know in in the you might have you know some sort of reproductive isolation there. I mean that's uh, that's sort of a unlikely to have that sort of snowballing effect but there's also some some evidence to suggest that there's genetic compatibility so just certain um, certain, I guess genotypes. So, I mean, yeah, certain genetic, you know, co- uh, the genetic sequences from certain females match up really well with, with genetic sequences sure. from, from certain males. Um, kind of the best example is that uh, it would be beneficial, generally been more beneficial to be incompatible, genetically incompatible with uh, uh individuals that you're like closely related with. So like mating with, you know, siblings is not very helpful um, in, uh, in most cases. So being genetically incompatible with, um, with closely related organisms can reduce the, reduce the likelihood of inbreeding depression that can, you know, severely reduce the Um But in, in a more general sense, um, there could be, you know, females that have, uh, yeah, not, not not necessarily, again, like that direct sort of physical selection for, you know, for certain ones over others, but um, potentially, you know, like a genetic or, or a, um, um, uh, a chemi- yeah, a chemical, a genetic or a kind of a chemical bias um, that can influence fertilization success. And I think what else? This is good practice for, for my proposal defense. Um, and yeah, just coming back to the, you know, to the more physical side, just sperm lifespan, like if, uh, if sperm can survive for multiple years, then the female, uh, then it's, you know, not sexy sons per se, but it's sexy sperm, you know, and females are more likely to, it's more likely to be present. So even if she isn't selecting for the sperm, if it's around, then, you know, that male is going to, is going to continue to contribute. Uh, to uh, you know the, the next gene pool, uh, even when he's no longer he could be dead, you know even if he's emigrated. Um, so from virility and, um, and, and lifespan. are certainly all that all traits that um, can influence fitness and and can be passed on from, from father to son. Um, and so that's yeah, that's the, that's all you need to you know, potentially have evolution occur.
1: That's pretty interesting. I mean, as far as, uh, like courtship, what's even really been observed and how would that, I mean, that's more on the physical side, but would that impact it as well? If there's some sort of communication that goes on before they start mating, like in a lot of other mited turtles where it's, it's a little bit more observable if they're in ponds or like, but in the salt marshes, it's very difficult to observe. And, uh, Probably, I mean, like you said, it's, it's chocolate milk most of the time. So observing that mm-hmm. is different. I'm, I'm wonder if there's much courtship there. If it's, a, it's, I doubt it would be more like snapping turtles or anything where there isn't really much and they just kind of. It looks like they're attacking each other. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it seems there seems to be something going on at least because uh, c- if I go out on the right day, I can see dozens or hundreds of terrapin heads poking out, and there's always a female. And often, like it's a it's a large portion of the time when I see a male, he's right he's right on top of a female, and he'll just always Mm -hmm. follow her around. And uh, Mm -hmm. they seem to be almost like there's some sort of uh, rudimentary bonding going on between the two. So this, uh... Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean that's. um,
2: I think the all the anecdotal evidence. I mean, I've heard of of, uh, some observations of sort of like uh, mating aggregations sort of like how, how you're describing, um, I know that they, they, yeah, they definitely occur up north. Um, and I think there's been some observations of them, um, yeah, in, in, in South Florida. So that certainly could be part of it. Um, I guess the, the the null hypothesis for any sort of patterns in, in multiple fraternity, it just comes down to encounter rate. So it might be something fancy like sexual selection, or it could just be the more males that you bump into the more likely you are to have a clutch you know rep- represented yeah. by um by by multiple males um so that's sort of the we're really interested in looking at multiple beaches kind of along the northern gulf coast into you know potentially branching into mississippi and and in, in addition to alabama because we would be really interested in in seeing if there's any sort of um, breeding migrations occurring, whether whether any of these ma- mating aggregations are occurring, uh, and uh, and whether you're seeing kind of long distance movements of uh, of males and, and females to this central location. Um, if that's the case, then we expect to see sort of similar levels of of, uh, of multiple paternity across you know across this wide expanse, and potentially you know to see similar males, potentially more attractive males being um, uh, having offspring kind of widely distributed geographically, um, whereas if they're kind of more isolated and you know they're just hanging out in individual areas, you'd expect to see more more isolation there. Um, I think the only, yeah, it's it's very it's very much chocolate milk. So I haven't seen much, but there was one instance where I saw one big female head, very obvious female head, and I think it was if not two, there were three male heads directly behind her. Um, oh, it was just sort of like a sort of like a conga line. Sorry.
1: No. So as you said, several males uh, surrounding the same female. That's that's pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. They're just but, sort uh, of one one behind the other. So I don't know how much how effective the the guys in the back were um, were, but um, that's the that was very heartening for me to see to see that there is some sort of competition occurring and and just the fact that I mean. I think I saw six heads at one time, and that has been the maximum I've ever seen in uh, in this area. We've got. I've been. We spoiled. don't have. <laughs> yeah,
1: gosh, no idea. <laughs> so yeah, well, we've got. I don't know exactly what is, the reason is, but. But sorry, uh, trade off. I've I found the uh, this the storage everything you just there very interesting. With they could select for store the sperm of uh, the most fit male or whichever one they and uh, essentially uh, take advantage of that for, for years to come and, and use that until there's not much of it left. And uh, I'd never heard of it like that before, but that's actually, I wonder if that would occur in other turtle species too, if not just the terrapins, but that this is, a, it's like a very interesting segue into that whole topic.
2: Yeah, I think... And just- sorry
1: you go ahead go ahead
2: <clears throat> no and i think that's like the this the idea of sperm storage over multiple years is just <laughs> i feel like the ultimate strategy would be to like find you know find yeah to, to select for to copulate with a with a very um uh with a very fit male um however you know however. Whatever component of fitness that we're using to describe his fitness, but just to you know gather as much sperm from him and then avoid mating aggregations whatsoever. There seems to be a lot of evidence that uh, another adva- advantage, and I don't know how to, it comes down to semantics, but another advantage of multiple paternity is that if you were to try and avoid mating with certain males, there are fitness costs, physical costs to kind of being accosted by multiple males um, and you know one strategy would just be to allow them to uh, just allow them to all mate with you as opposed to you know trying to get away yeah. um, so that, i guess that's that's another there are a lot of null hypotheses to you know um, uh, looking at so yeah that like could having I, sorry, storage go yeah but to be able to mate and then avoid any other, you know, avoid any other turtles, any other males for as long as possible. Like that's, that could, you know, kind of reduce injury rates um, to females. So yeah, I mean, if we keep talking, I'll keep remembering, I'll keep remembering benefits of uh, of multiple fraternity. Yeah, really, really cool topic.
1: Oh yeah. Well, that
0: in itself too would be a benefit. Uh, Jack's on a bit of a delay here. Are you going to say something? Go
1: ahead. No, no, you got. It.
0: Okay, well, uh, that in itself too would sort of be a benefit, right? If you could actually store uh, something that a male that was kind of more fit, I guess that that, that had some benefit over over long periods. I think that that mm-hmm. it has been documented, if I'm not correct, in painted turtles potentially, but this mm-hmm. was a, a long time ago. But it's something that it's functionally, I think, very hard to track. Because as you, I think you said early on. Actually, determining paternity in turtles can be something that's pretty challenging. I think there's various methods for this. Maybe like microsatellites, you could probably, I guess, fingerprint and get maternal and paternal signatures. I guess, I maybe you could use enzymes. The, I guess, restriction fragments. You could get kind of the same, I guess, barcode. I don't. What, what sort of? And now, I, I guess that's kind of challenging, though. Is that? I, I've never, I, I kind of, I'm familiar with the, the, the analysis methods, but I've never done something like that. Whereas mm-hmm. Evo, you're actually doing this. What, what sort of techniques mm. are you using? If you don't mind sharing or, and, and kind of, what is it like talking about? it? It's so easy. Oh, we could just learn all this, but actually doing it is a different thing. What is that kind of, what is that like?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, this is, I'm a, I'm a field boy. This is uh, all this lab work I'm, that I'm doing for this, um, Extremely gratified to, to have the opportunity to do a lot of this a lot of this wet lab work. Um, yeah, we are attempting to develop a, a SNP panel specific to kind of the location uh, to our geographic location to kind of Alabama, kind of, you know, Western Florida Panhandle and, and, and the Mississippi Terrapin populations. We've we've collected samples obviously hundreds of blood samples from, um, from Dolphin Island, but also a couple of, of, uh, samples from, um, from, uh, adjacent areas. And yeah, we're just looking for, um, single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. These are just single, um, single nucleotides along the, um, along the, uh, um, well, I guess, I don't know. That, I don't know exactly what um, what method we'll use. Whether we use RADseq and, and we're sort of breaking everything down, or whether we're doing kind of whole genome sequencing. But um, we're looking for variation along um, along the uh, genome that is informative um, for differentiating individuals that are in different populations, differentiating individuals that are. Um, uh, kind of at, at different spatial scales in general, but um, obviously for, for like kinship analysis, for for parentage analysis, we want to find the SNPs that can differentiate individuals from each other, and can yes, sort of act as barcodes or fingerprints um, can can identify kind of a genetic signature and, and differentiate that from uh, from any other individual turtle, uh, and it starts by just identifying again, identifying points that, that are informative um, for, for differentiating individuals from each other. Uh, and that's, uh, that's sort of the step that we're on, just figuring out where, yeah, just figuring out what, what variation exists in the genome um, and uh, how to move forward from there. There are some really interesting um, kind of technologies in, in, in molecular um, well, sequencing, obviously, but also in genotyping. Um, there's some uh, micro um, haplotyping that we're looking into where it's almost like uh, you find areas where there are multiple SNPs right next to each other, so kind of looking almost akin to uh, uh, micro-satellites where there's kind of variation at each marker as opposed to just it being one or the other, um, as, as you see with individual SNPs. So, um, yeah, there's certain methods, it, it, it just comes down to, obviously there are different costs and kind of the efficiency of things goes up and down based on um, kind of along the spectrum of how many individuals you're interested in genotyping and then um, kind of how deep within the genome um, and, and, sort of, yeah, and sort of what, what questions you're, you're interested in, uh, in answering, uh, uh, whether it's population-wide, or among populations, or within populations, just looking at you know kind of differentiating individuals. Um, so that's again, I'm <laughs> I'm field based. So that's uh, a lot of information there that I'm that I'm still yeah that I'm still learning. Um, but it's uh, it's uh, it's incredibly interesting um, and just the sort of gives you a good appreciation for the the vastness of of, of DNA sequences where you can't just sort of <laughs> look at them. Um, you kind of have to, uh, well, construct them in, um, you know, in, in, uh, in, in more and more intricate ways. Uh, so I can, I can try and answer as many questions as I can about this, but this is, yeah, this is the, um, I'm approaching the, the edge of my knowledge here
0: so so you're not quite at the the analysis step yet so you're kind of doing more field field work right now mm-hmm. okay okay yeah. so i i thought that this was not, okay so you're still in the process of this that's awesome okay
2: no yeah we're still still in the thick of it so hope to get out in a couple of weeks start looking for nesting females yeah
0: well that that's cool i guess we can sort of yeah that that's going to be some some amazing work and and some I guess kind of newer techno- technological got s- s- kind of analyses. so that's going to be a a cool thing to do there and and it gives you an appreciation too when you're looking at I guess the the nucleotide level of differentiation how mm-hmm. as hum well just kind of as organisms we're sort of just a code when, when you really look deep into it and and the mm-hmm. struggle for survival and, and, and reproduction and, and I guess natural selection is just kind of this, this tussle between different codes of information, right? It's kind of a it's a fascinating view that you have that, that you're looking at it beyond the organismal level, right? But uh, I guess we can sort of transition into maybe more the, the physical aspect, the field aspect. I think that we're all sort of interested in that. Um, what, what's it like to work in, you said it's sort of South Alabama in, in, in near Dauphin Island. What, what is that general region like the ecosystem there? And what, what other kind of things are you seeing? So,
2: I mean, it's a, uh, so it's a, it's a barrier Island. Dauphin Island is, uh, um, is the only barrier Island along the, uh, along the Alabama coast. It's, uh, located at the southwestern extent of Mobile Bay. Um, so it's sort of the one, one sort of hinge, one edge of of, uh, of Mobile Bay. The other side is Fort Morgan. Um, actually, very interesting. Kind of a, a, a different, um, well, some similarities and some differences in, in uh, kind of the habitat structure there. Um, but most of the uh, most of the areas are on Dolphin Island uh, and just just across the Mississippi Channel on the on the uh, on the mainland coast. Um, these are kind of muddy-bottomed salt marshes. Um, kind of a lot of the standard, you know, Spartina, um, Spartina grass is growing. Um, muddy bottoms. I guess that's a, that's a, kind of an interesting uh, takeaway. I've I uh, I did some work in um, oh gosh, it was uh, South Carolina. I guess Kiowa Island. I can't remember if that's in South Carolina or Georgia yep. um, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. so yeah, those there were running around on on uh, oyster beds, uh, which was kind of nice kind of a red rover strategy of of uh, seining along these different salt creeks. not so not the case in uh, uh, in uh, Mobile Bay and kind of that surrounding area. it's all it's all muddy, so it just comes down to putting out fight nets um, so I captured. Most of my terrapins using fyke nets, um, and and they do they do a marvelous job, no bait required. So we've been, we've been very happy with um, uh, how those work. Otherwise, um, what else? What else do we find in the area? I guess uh, Dauphin Island is absolutely incredible. You know, you have to kind of on vacation for field work. It's you know it's an absolutely beautiful place. Um, beautiful bird sanctuaries in the area so you do you do find some oh gosh black lizards i know they have there's an alligator in the bird sanctuary there's some i think are some alligators in the uh in the surrounding bays kind of where i'm working so that's that's always interesting um i'm trying to think yeah but the i guess the big um kind of the big negative is that it is sort of a it is sort of a manicured area um so a lot of the fall marshes that i'm that I'm working in have been kind of degraded over time um although I will say that there's some restoration occurring this year starting this year uh, kind of my main study site is being the, the salt marshes there are being restored so that worked out really well we got some good kind of pre-treatment data so hopefully they'll the, the restoration will be a success and we'll see kind of a uh, well we'll see what happens you know in terms of in terms of terrapin populations there but um Obviously, we get Gulf Coast salt marsh snakes. We found a couple of those. I think that's my profile picture everywhere. Um, it's really good. For, it's a really pretty snake. Really good photo. Um, yeah. Otherwise, you know, I sit down for lunch on the beach, and and you just see dolphins kind of popping around. It's dolphins and brown pelicans seem to work together, or well, maybe there's like a commensal relationship occurring there. Um, yeah it's a really cool place the one yeah the one big drawback is hurricanes that come through every yeah more than occasionally unfortunately so it's kind of a, a race against time when you have and also like uh i guess different objectives for different uh studies and different questions that you're asking obviously interested in uh the Kind of survivorship of nests, like natural survivorship, but I also want that sample size, and I also want to pull the nests ahead of ahead of any inclement weather to to get the to get those uh, uh, individual sequenced. But um, you know, it's it's field work; nothing ever goes completely right or completely wrong. Um, so highly recommend; it's a really great great spot. Oh,
1: well, wow. yeah. Great seafood. I mean, are we kidding? <laughs> That's that sounds very similar. It's very similar to like the North Atlantic coast salt marshes, but uh, okay, the water here at least. So I have several sites. The there doesn't seem to be the the, the creeks are very muddy, and uh, but the bays mm-hmm. themselves tend to be sandier, uh, at least in. in, in the, I have several of the sites I've been to, but the, the really productive one. Well, they're all really productive. They're, they they can go to any of them. And uh, there's just terrapin heads just blanketing the water at any given time. And uh, mm-hmm. but the particular site I was just at last week, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's that you have these, uh, these the classic islands and like the salt marsh creeks cutting right through them. And, uh, but the water is only about two feet deep. At, at low tide, it's less than that. Like on some tides, it's only about six inches and then it'll go up to about three feet. And uh, for the early part of the year until about the middle of the summer, the water is really clear which is unusual for terrapin habitat. And uh, it's clear yes, enough that what, I can actually, period did you say? So it's, it's clear in the winter and the end of the winter. And then it's really clear from the spring. And then towards the end of the summer, it starts to get really muddy. And, uh, I, I just noticed that like for the years that I've been going there, I wonder if it has to do with the agricultural runoff or just the movement in the water or something mm-hmm. to do with the vegetation. I'm not sure what factors or the boat activity in the Bay, but, uh, as of now, and once the terrapins start to come out, the water is about three to four feet of visibility. So when it's less than three feet, you can't go anywhere. You can you can just walk through the water and you see them, and you can run and run them down and grab them. Or uh, uh, and you'll see all the the, the oceanic like uh, fauna in there too. I've had cow nose mm-hmm. rays right over my feet, and uh, I mean, there's no alligators, but there are there are dolphins <laughs> in there. And, uh if you get really lucky you can see sea turtles in there like uh loggerheads or ridleys like uh they're occasionally in there but they, they don't tend to go in the super shallow water and uh, occasionally mm-hmm. they'll wash up dead or something like that but uh what was I gonna say yeah with the with the terrapins, and then the, the, the salt marsh is full of birds there's ospreys everywhere mm-hmm. and uh the, the ospreys seem to get a hold of male terrapin fairly often I don't know if that if you see that down there. But uh, I'll occasionally see ospreys with with a, what looks like with it's what's clearly a male in in, in grasped in in uh, the feet and at the base of osprey nests there'll be shells of males sometimes and juveniles too. But when the shell is only three or four inches long and, it, and it's clearly was not old that that was definitely a male. And uh, but the trade off the females get killed by raccoons and foxes and things like that. The males don't really have to deal with that.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: they don't seem to have been. Harvested here near as extensively as they were in the mm. south. Because uh, yeah. well, I mean the, the abundance is insane. And like it, it varies, it it does somehow vary a lot though, because I'm unsure of where the terrapins go on certain days. Like if I go out there and the conditions aren't if it's not warm enough, that's the biggest factor. And mm-hmm. uh sometimes I don't really see many, but if it's a really hot, sunny day, I there's I once went with one of my friends and we brought the same net. This was more of just for fun. It wasn't any real purpose behind this. Just to catch as many as we could because uh, we had been just grabbing them. We're like, how many can we get at once? And this one canal was just about the width of our same net and it was full of them. So we're like, we literally, they're, they're like fish in a, I guess, what is it? Fish in a barrel, like the saying, whatever. And uh, yeah. we just saned this whole Creek and we had to have like, somewhere between 70 and a hundred of them by the time we were at the end and they were just, we didn't know what to do. We just opened the net and let them back out. But we're like, Holy crap. How, how, many, how many can you get that uh, abundance? But, but the downside is most of the, uh, most of the coast of Delaware itself is now being developed. So the, the bay, like the the marshes are being, uh, they're being consumed pretty much by development, but the ones that remain like this one, they're in really good shape, which is uh, hmm. uh it's lucky, but what was the sex ratio like in that uh, swarm? I my mean, gosh. What it seems to be funny? pretty even like uh, okay fairly even between them. I've never seen several males near one female that I found that interesting when you said that. I almost okay. always see, I, I'll, I almost see uh, I, I never really see males on my own for whatever reason. When I see males, they're normally near a female and uh but the females are kind of ubiquitous and i will find them in deeper water Mm -hmm. uh and and whenever i'll often two of them together there's a there's a male with a male right behind and then there's horseshoe crabs all the bay too i don't know i didn't mention that but but the delaware and rehoboth bays have most of the world's horseshoe crabs so they're Mm -hmm. they're ridiculously common to not step on them but uh and the terrapins and the horseshoe crabs are almost neck and neck in abundance in some areas. And uh, I've never really witnessed any interactions between the, like, any notable interactions between males and females. Just how they're staying near each mm-hmm. other. And they'll, sur- they'll go beneath the water when you spook them. And they'll surf together, like, with each other. So they they, they seem to have, it's, bond or interest in each other is, it's strong enough that my presence won't scare them. I, I find that pretty mm-hmm. interesting. But
2: yeah, no, I've always wondered whether there's like posses, whether you have like, I could imagine like a, you know, a group of, if there are any sort of, uh, what am I saying? There's, there seems to be so much If You know, you find the same terrapins in the same creeks, like over, I know Kiowa Island, they've been finding the same ones for decades in, in just the same spot. And yeah, I just wonder if there's like, classes of them, like, you know, from a certain neighborhood, moving, moving long distances and then moving back, whether, whether there is any sort of, any sort of, yeah, social interaction there, um, kind of past, you know, yeah, just, 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 just copulation. Um, But yeah, that's really interesting. I guess that's what you'd expect with even sex ratios. It's just sort of one-to-one and, and it's no need, there's no need to compete. You know, everyone, everyone...
1: (laughs) everyone has a good time do um, a like, like, uh, sorry do you witness some basking like do you ever see the terrapins out basking on mudflats or anything like that no ever i hate it no it's like come on wow <laughs> i don't are there see, even um, mudflats for them to bask on like no, they're even dup- asking
2: yeah admittedly it's it's uh rare i'm trying to think yeah i mean you know we do get we do get some low low tides but it it has to be pretty low in order to get stranded uh in order to get a lot of mud flaps um showing up which kind of surprising because i feel like it's you know it's like (laughs) two feet of water and and four feet of mud but um no i've I've never seen them basking before and there are a couple of really good spots you know even just like some driftwood um yeah so that's that's um that's something that I found really interesting. And another thing, I, I focus on the muddy bottoms because we have Fort Morgan Peninsula just just across the way, and it's got Bon Secours, uh, National Wildlife Refuge, so it's like incredible high quality um, terrapin habitat, or, or what I imagine terrapins would be into. Got hard sandy bottoms, or I don't know, some sort of clay or silt. Um, well whatever it is you can you can run across it really nice and and drag a stain across it and and like i've never never seen any sign of ever seen any sign of terrapins over there um so that's sort of a a conundrum um i don't really understand what's going on again there's anecdotal evidence they've um there have been some hatchlings spotted by a person who had no idea where they were at the time (laughs) i asked them like north or south side, east or west side. They're like, oh no, no, it's just Fort Morgan Peninsula. So that was an aggravating
1: an yeah. aggravating
2: anecdote. But um, yeah, I think we've we've um, my first year was basically just figuring out where there were terrapins and kind of you know what sort of questions, what sort of sample sizes that we can gather. And I think we found Dolphin Island's got a good um, got a good population. There's a bunch at at Heron Bay. Um, just kind of to the north. That's where I mean, Shane Wibbles, that he has a uh, he has his kind of um, nesting nesting beach there that he's been he's been surveying for over a decade now. Um, and then some areas just across the across the state line in, in Mississippi that are I'm um, looking forward to um, to to surveying this year. They've got like we found about maybe 70 nests close to a hundred nests uh, on dolphin and they're finding close to a thousand nests, um, on the, uh, on the beaches, just, just across the state line at Mississippi. So I'm with, yeah, I'm hoping for, for more densities, more similar to, uh, to what you're familiar with.
1: Yeah. Uh, just across Even, the state uh, line. Yeah. I'll be pretty quick. Even, uh, the densities, It took me a good while and i mean i wasn't i didn't have that i wasn't doing any research or anything it was just going out in the field looking for turtles like i was i was pretty young i was like it was years ago uh it took me a long time to actually start finding terrapins at all like even though there's sites right near where i live that are are amazing and that are Mm -hmm. that are beautiful habitat have ridiculous densities uh, i didn't even find out how to get them for a while and i've been to this exact site when i was younger I could never catch the terrapins because i would go in a kayak i was never there at the right time when the water was clear so i assumed it was like 10 feet deep and i the terrapins they will not they're like if you're in a kayak they're like map turtles that you can't get near them at least in my experience mm-hmm. but you remove the kayak from the equation and suddenly it's if the water's walkable uh, but yeah and i mean we find hatchlings and people that live right along the bay get hatchlings in their yard and nesting females get trapped up in rocks and things like that but uh i know the state like the they like the state has done surveys here and there are ones that you can participate in as a volunteer like a just citizen and uh hmm. the way they the, the way the data is like collected there is they're looking i don't know what with this but they you literally go out there with like a notepad and you count how many heads you see poking up in the water like if you go to the right area, you can get dozens in it, like and pretty quickly, and uh, it's it's it is insane. But there 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 there's an art to it. It's like if it, you spend a spend a long time finding the right spot, and the next thing you know, boom, they're everywhere, and you just get so used to them. Even the dunes, you, if I go there in the end, middle of the end of the summer, mm-hmm. it's just nuts everywhere. You can see like you can see all the raided ones that raccoons have just have destroyed, but you can see there's just mm-hmm. the whole. Any patch of sand has been turned into a nest. Like Females have just deposited their eggs everywhere. And uh, even in, in this particular way that cuts right across the, the major nesting habitat, they, they recently mm. put up a drift fence, luckily, that, that mm. has saved tons of females. But even with the amount of females getting killed on that road for probably decades, it didn't seem to bring down the abundance of the population because it, it, it was so massive already. I mean... But yeah, no. <laughs> amazing to me. Oh, yeah, it's amazing to me, too. Man. As the, oh, one more thing. As far as basking, they don't see basking bask on anything other than mud, I've noticed. I've never seen them bask on driftwood. I've never seen them bask on hmm. anything like that, even when it looked like a great basking site. Uh, there's there's island. Like, out of the entire giant marsh that's got to be hundreds of acres, there's this one little island that has this, the it's it's in this perfect spot this huge bay comes in or like a little cove and then forks around the island and there's and mm-hmm. the islands are made of like mussel shells mixed with mud so they're mm-hmm. kind of elevated of the water a bit and this one has like a has like a little peak that raises about three feet off the water and for whatever mm-hmm. reason all compete for that spot and uh they will be, you can see it, like it's just dotted with them. Like there's just dozens and they've all, all climbed up on top of each other, males and females to, to, to nest on that, that one, like five square foot spot. But the rest of the marsh, they don't touch. Like uh, it's maybe there's a, there's spots like that hidden somewhere. They all will congregate to, to bask in one area. It's, it's a very interesting behavior. That's fascinating. D- and duly noted. Yeah. I won't look
2: for driftwood anymore.
0: That's pretty, that's very interesting. I, t- I wonder too, I guess going back to what we were talking about, the potential for certain terrapins that are kind of higher coloration to be more for males, females to want to s- kind of select that. Uh, Jack by you and not just by you, but across all the East coast, I don't know, maybe by you too, Evo, but uh, Texas diamondback terrapins were introduced up by jack at least in some of those areas and then also in other spots i kind of wonder because the the literalis typically are kind of darker how that might affect the breeding uh in in potential for kind of introgression there i also wonder mm-hmm. too i mean this i guess would tie into what evo you're doing sort of it seems like a lot of terrapin populations are extremely homogenized to a point where it's it's strange over like massive distances they seem to all fall into certain like a single or a few different haplotypes at most that, that there's very little differentiation among subpopulations so maybe there's not going to be any difference but i'm just thinking if they're the darker ones are integrated in populations of lighter ones maybe that there's some kind of i guess barrier to to inbreeding there but not inbreeding but to to hybridization but at Mm -hmm. the same rate if there's not really any much of a difference then maybe it doesn't really matter but it could be a good thing right if the if the difference in coloration signifies something we're not going to be mixing the the gene pools but Mm -hmm. i mean it's just interesting to think about that could be something right
1: i I know that way yeah i mean uh Mm -hmm. i tend to see like i don't know but if you will by by you if you, you see uh if you see it d- with really really bold concentric rings like big females with very light carapace and like super dark black concentric rings if that, that's a really really common or the other way around if females tend to be a darker brown color overall cuz uh up here yeah. the majority of females have black concentric rings and very mm-hmm. tan, light, light, light-colored shell beneath, and they also have a bright gray, bright skin that goes seems to go along with that. But mm-hmm. uh, there are like up here that 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 have those more piliata literalis kind of like phenotype where their their carapace yeah. is like a brown or darker black color, and uh, the skin coloration seems to vary a lot more like randomly. But I never even considered that they might not there might be some barrier to hybridization there because of that, but uh, I seem to find some in between in coloration, but not mm-hmm. a lot. It's normally like one or the other. It's like, oh, this one's bright, almost white undertone, super bold, like someone took a Sharpie and drew these rings, and then you get one that's like tan or brown. It's, there's, that's kind of how it is. But
2: mm-hmm.
1: No, yeah, these guys are, I don't know, They some
2: might describe them as uh, kind of drab, uh, I, I think they're I think they're really cool. They've got that sort of cool gothic look. Um, I do see I, I mean I, general patterns like there aren't many. Like you get the some of them have mustaches and some of them don't. Um, they seem to uh, generally the shell is completely black except for kind of the, the marginals and the um, marginals that are you know more red orange or the uh, plastron that does kind of yeah have that tan. Uh, tan orange color. Um, usually the spots are the, sp- the spots tend to be pretty fine. I'm looking at like the one the most incredible, <laughs> the most incredible female. The, the very, the pretty female that I put on all my grant proposals has like nice big kind of Dalmatian spots. Um, but, um, yeah, most of them are, most of them stay, uh, all of them, they're yeah, they stay pretty dark, but I can, I can tell that they, they seem to tan like over, over time. So you get some females that are, um, kind of tan all over, um, almost, yeah, kind of yellow in the, um, in their, in their, uh, in their jaws. Um, then yeah, so yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess variation, I do see variation, but I, yeah, I don't know how much it, I don't know how much it influences. Yeah, i, mean, I Again, we have unfortunately we've um, um, we haven't been able to uh, we haven't done any sort of uh, parentage uh, analysis at, at the moment. So, um, and, and haven't you know looked at any um, uh, copulation occurring or been able to you know kind of look at whether whether there's sort of color matching going on or. Um, whether certain colors are or certain morphs are, are uh, being preferred over others. I guess I've got, know, go. found this
1: just um, uh, two years ago. So this one.
2: That's, that's I, I was at home, one. I can yeah. show
1: you. If I was at home, yeah. I'm in my grandpa's. I have I have several. I have, I have several terrapin mm-hmm. shells. Uh. Oh, yeah, they, the plastron doesn't look like that here. That is mm-hmm. completely different. Because uh, I have a couple shells at my house, I, I could send a picture later where the, the carapace is bold in, uh, like bold with, like like the bold black like concentric rings. But the plastron is almost like bleached. Like I mean, there's black rings on there, mm. but it doesn't have that interesting like m- mahogany pattern. But yeah, you do see side- a pattern the ones with the dark shells. Like that, it goes together with the darker carapace.
2: Okay. Yeah, we see it's sort of, um, it kind of across the board in terms of the plastron. So yeah, we get um,
1: that's interesting. a lot of this
2: patterning and, and yeah, like, I think it's, I don't know if, if there is like a bleaching occurring, you know, with, with, with older individuals, but um, um, but yeah, you would get everything from like solid tan all the way up to just black. Um, so a lot of variation and that's, and, that's, and that's really interesting. And yeah, you can see this one's not the that's not the biggest but um she's starting to kind of wear out a little bit so um but yeah you still see some we those, had a big head those mm-hmm. rings there
0: yeah, yeah very, very pronounced rings, annuli, I guess the, so. the, the, the mm-hmm. sweet rings, very very kind of sculptured beautiful
1: another thing i noticed yep. about the piliata literalis and the actually all the gulf coast like subspecies the marginals kind of flap and come back them and they don't seem to do that on northerns like mm-hmm. uh, it's you can even see it there they're, they're curling back while on northerns mm-hmm. it tends to grow straight out and uh, that's what it seems to be but I wonder if that has to do more with just like the growth of I wonder if that do more with the growth of the head like because uh, you've you told me you, you found females with like heads of 50 millimeters plus and in, in maximum width and uh it's yep same not even close to that here like you can i can find females with massive body sizes but the heads are small mm-hmm. and uh, i wonder if the if the marginals kind of flaring up would allow wouldn't mobility slightly easier for if the head is, is you, really large like that
0: are you taking morphometrics on, on when you're surveying or oh.
1: yep,
2: yeah, yeah we're taking head measurements and shell measurements and tail measurements so we're getting the um, kind of the full, everyone gets a, uh, yeah, full rundown. Um, obviously we're marking them. We're notching them and, uh, and taking blood samples. Um, are we referring to flaring on the, kind of on the interior portion here on the head
1: or, or it seems on? to be like, it seems to occur, uh, when it occurs, it seems to occur on the whole, the whole, all the marginals of the posterior and anterior, anterior yeah, ones. Yeah. Just yeah. kind of interesting. Like, yeah. uh. And the head size seems to be the head size seems to be correlated. I mean, we've discussed that before. Unless it's correlated to diet, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Like, because uh, if it's yeah. the same, the same. Uh, well, the, the turtles from the the ones that exhibit the like the piliata phenotype up here, they're this, they're genetically the same as the ones in the Gulf Coast, but their heads are all up here. It, it probably has to do. When I was reading just a publication, I think the Texas DNR did it was like 200 pages or something but they had a part of like a diet, like where they had analyzed their diet and found uh the females are feeding on like scorched muscles and things like that down there while mm-hmm. up here it's like almost exclusive winkle snails and I'm thinking there's something about those muscles that must require a lot more force to crush or something uh because the females up here their heads i mean they have a powerful bite i I actually was holding when it bit me in the chin and was latched on there and I had to like get underwater to get it off. And uh <laughs> but it's nothing like nothing like the heads on with the with the, the alveolar surfaces expanding throughout the mouth. It's not like that here.
2: Yeah, we unfortunately we haven't done any sort of diet analysis on these guys. They've I mean they've they've pooped on me before. Um and you've yeah, you get um kind of shell fragments, but uh but yeah, that's I know it seems like Obviously, there's been work done diet diet work done in Florida and in Texas, and I haven't found much from kind of the northern Gulf Coast and in, in, in Alabama, Mississippi. So that's that's definitely something. It'd be interesting to have to kind of, I guess, combine or connect that and and, and see how um, how that uh, how that varies at all along the you know. Uh, I guess longitudinally, not just, not just latitudinally. Um, we can kind of get that additional, additional aspects there.
0: Yeah. yeah that would, yeah, be, no, that would be interesting to see. So I think we'll kind of start to wrap things up. Uh, I think our, kind of a last little note here is um, if you had like one piece of advice or to, mm. I guess someone going into a, in, into a graduate, potentially like a PhD program, um or a doctor program maybe i i don't know what would your advice be there or just someone trying to pursue kind of herpetology as a career what would you suggest
2: yeah i mean i think it's uh i think you guys are on the all on the right track starting i think starting as soon as possible and developing as you know as many sort of relationships with the i know i was (laughs) i was very interested in working with animals all my life and not so much with people but uh, unfortunately you know people are everywhere. Uh, and there's only going to be more of them in your life. Um, so I think uh, yeah, I think um, starting early, but I mean, as as, as you saw with me, it's uh, it's sort of uh, it sort of began at the undergraduate level. So sort of kind of like a um, a level playing field. it's It's certainly possible to kind of move forward move forward in your career even if you're sort of not exactly sure. Um, what you're interested in, you know, from the get-go. Um, I think my biggest advice—I um, I, don't—I don't know what the—we had a speaker come in recently um, uh, who gave—I don't remember exactly what it says, but paraphrasing, basically said you—paraphrasing you—you um, won't change—you won't change yourself, you won't build yourself up unless you um, make yourself uncomfortable and get into an uncomfortable situations. Um, you know, if I <laughs> was in my comfort zone, you know, I'd probably just uh, live on the beach all day and, um, and, and just sort of <laughs> living day to day, doing com- comfortable things. Um, I'd probably never get off of Netflix or whatever, but um, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's important for growth to, to kind of branch out when you can. Specialize when you can. It's of course important, but to you know make yourself as. And unfortunately, it comes down to being very employable um, and to um, kind of have obviously have you know have interests and passion, um, but to also think of kind of the big bigger implications and um, you know the the advantages that you know your your study organisms can can offer you. Um, in addition to you know just sort of that kind of that con- uh, that conservation um, big conservation uh, aspect that I that I know is super important to all of us um, and yeah learn to code and program yesterday it's gonna everything's gonna be computational in just like a couple of years um, so it's you know it's important to be multilingual bilingual. Um, if you don't want to learn Spanish or, you know, Polish, in my case, um, you can learn, learn a computer language, learn Python or, um, you know, become kind of familiar with, with, with the terminal, you know, the computer terminal. Um, I think that'll, that'll help anybody regardless of what, what their interests are, academia or, or otherwise. Yeah, so, and just
1: yeah. ask for help always. Can't do this alone. Always I think social media, help. social media can help, but it's also uh, it, it can really be good, but it's uh it, it can also go both the other way if, if and with for some people. But I mean, sometimes I feel like I sometimes I just I'm like oh I just want to delete it because it gets uh mm. it's irritating. But it's also like it's a great way to connect with people uh, in just like, even just a casual way, and that can lead to much greater things than that so it's it's pretty effect that's a pretty effective way i mean that's how that's how we're all here
2: (laughs) yeah so here i am thank yeah Yeah. just posting posting terrapin photos and and here i am so yeah absolutely make noise yeah take good photos and yeah keep keep talking to people
0: (laughs) that that's great advice, and definitely, will as we kind of progress, we'll take it to heart. And anyone out there that's looking to progress, exactly. do the same. And I think people that have gone through it that listen, they they understand it. So, uh, with that, I think that we can kind of. So Jason just got mauled by a dog or something. They've they've taken over. I his wonder what so. I'm Well,
1: gonna... well, no, I think when I was, I was gonna say when I, when I was when I was much younger, uh, and when I was when I was much much younger, like years ago, I didn't, uh, when I used to like a younger kid, I never realized how important uh, like computers would come and just like skills in general, as far as coding and and how important that would come. I mean, it makes perfect sense, but when you're like a younger kid and you're just into the animals and you're out there like catching them, you're like, how is this going to make any sense? And then you actually start to understand what goes into the research and uh, like data processing aspect of it. And then you're like, Wow, this, uh, I, I need to really take the computer classes seriously now and probably mm-hmm. learn a lot more. But yeah, yeah, I there's, we're about I mean, to move. go on.
2: I, I was just gonna say it's, um, yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, we're, we're in a field where it's all obviously the anecdotal stuff is, is huge, and I think that's super important for like building theory. You know, obviously, it's, there's observations and. Um, and, and that's how questions are born, but yet at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's we gotta, you know, yeah, we gotta code and we gotta be able to analyze, analyze the information that we collect in, in a, in a analytical way and quantify the patterns that we see, um, to, you know, to identify things that are actually, you know, actually biologically significant. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Definitely, definitely keep learning stats.
0: Never stop learning stats. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I got to do after this. I got to play around with R in modeling <laughs> and covas for... So, yeah, but it's like well, for someone who wants yeah. to be on the field all the time, <laughs> it can be kind of a pain, but you got to put up with it. Um, all right, well, let's do that little trivia volley if that works for everyone. I don't know, uh, Evo, if you just want to ask us questions, that works, or if you want us to counteract counter you with some i mean we, we could, could do, do like uh, mike
1: and i could do three and you could do three back and forth like yeah All again right. i'm trying to i'm trying to i got one this is my
2: ace in the hole it's just the a... <laughs> maybe i do you throw me three and i throw you one because <laughs> i don't know how i'm gonna i don't know how we could do that together. that
0: works
2: if you want sure I... Yeah. All I right. Just you want to the, start us off? Yes, I do. Right. I just learned the other day. Um, how do I put this question? I guess. Um, <laughs> what Great is the? Um, I guess what is the mineral that comprises turtle shells?
0: like eggshells or actual shells? The shells sorry the the the
2: the, 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 the shells themselves
0: oh that's a that's a good question
1: <laughs> is
2: there several there's answers is there like there several is, pretty sure there's only one answer again i have to double check now because but I'm i'm pretty sure there's a primary there's a primary one
0: I mean, the, like... the shell itself is keratinous, so that would be kind of like uh, some sort of uh, like epithelial cells. But I'm trying to think about the mineral, like eggshells. It's it's aragonite, I think. It's uh, calcium carbonate. Here mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Yeah. No, you're right. Yes. This is
0: a, this is how much I know. I It'd be something it like that. yeah. That's what I would I
1: assume. What the bone is consi- What can, <laughs> the bone consists of. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. No, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know, uh, like the mineral of the shell itself. I think it it would be – yeah, I I don't know if it would be a mineral or if that would just be like a a skin epithelial type of – that's a good – it's a good question actually. I'm trying (laughs) – I I don't – I can't think I know the answer. I don't know, Jack.
1: No, I wouldn't know like the specific – I would know some sort of calcium or it's like – but I wouldn't be able to tell you specifically more than that.
0: Yeah, I mean the the shell itself is – because it's derived – because you have the the endochondral bone that's derived that's like the skeleton itself that's fused to the the dermal bone and then you've got the keratinus layer but like Mm -hmm. the the specific cellular level of that i I mean it's they're composed of cells different types of cells so i don't know like mineral wise the minerals i guess (laughs) yeah that that's a sort of a chemistry question that i that it's not my 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 wheelhouse there but That that's opened up a question. (laughs) Now we gotta figure it out. Kind of how those things interact. Well that's okay, that's that's cool. I guess we can yeah, I don't know what was was, what was the what was was your the answer, right?
2: No, it is it it, you're correct, it was not curl I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah, obviously keratin comes into shell skews, but um yeah, it's um I didn't know that there were different types of uh, um, different forms of, of, like individual minerals, but um, yeah. It's aragonite, which I just sort of has stuck with me for, for a while just because it reminds me of word
1: of the ring. So I hear, I hear Aragon. So, aragon. That's a form of, let's take a calcium or something. Mm-hmm. Or uh, Yeah. A type of okay. calcium
2: carbonate chemical, uh, different kind of chemical composition
1: yeah i don't know yeah. chemistry didn't yeah, resonate that, as well yeah. with some other areas of did. <laughs> and now
0: yeah now you're talking about like spatial aspects of chemistry that becomes very <laughs> that becomes more mathematical i think than like that was a good describe. question that is a good mm-hmm. question
2: um, but yeah no I, I guess the yeah here it is it's among amniotes turtles are the only clade that lay aragonitic eggs so that's interesting.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. that's I mean, a fascinating one. Yeah, that that's one that most people <laughs> that that that's not one. The only reason I knew this is because of Whit Gibbons' his book on sliders that resonated with me. But that's really the, the only reason. But um, okay, uh, so I guess we can we can throw a few out there. Mm-hmm. Jack, I don't know if you've got one. You've been thinking of uh,
1: I mean, I have a, like nothing. It's not really it's not chemistry or anything, but it's. Uh, it's more of just ecological and I was thinking
0: go ahead, lay it lay it on lay it on all of us, I guess.
1: So uh, so it's well known that musk turtles are consumed are often consumed by alligator snapping turtles. What two species of what other two colonial species would be some of the primary predators of diamondback terrapins in their environment. At least some dietary research has shown.
2: Predators of terrapins.
1: Think of the similar relationship between the alligator snapping turtle and the musk turtles, uh, kind of like would fill that predatory niche to the terrapin.
0: Oh yes. This is good. <laughs> Strange. Sell the niche of an alligator
2: snapper.
1: think a uh, uh, niche is yeah. kind of a way of more like a relationship. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we do have.
2: I mean, we yeah. do have alligator snappers in the area. Um, I can't think of something else that would be sort of benthic dwelling.
1: This
0: yeah, this thr- this way. is gonna throw
1: people. This this, this could this, throw this. people off because they they might not realize. It. I didn't even think of it at first until I read it, and I'm like, that makes perfect sense. Not well, sea turtles, isn't it? It is it? It is. The loggerhead loggerhead sea turtles and uh, Kemp's ridleys. It's actually, really? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, yeah. That's what I was my when I heard that I was reading, and I'm like, that makes perfect sense. So loggerheads are lean. Like, they're very sim- similar to alligator snapping turtles and and a lot of uh durophagus turtles i mean and chemist mm-hmm. ridley's too i mean they're more of a crustacean feeder but they they both have the power to to crush and, and feed on terrapins and uh mm-hmm. i mean the carcasses that were like the stomachs were well open and then uh, during like a necropsy it was in that texas paper i'll have to find uh they only they just these were just random carcasses they they took of these sea turtles they found and all of them had terrapin remains in the stomachs, like uh, all of the Ridleys and loggerheads, which uh, I found actually very, I found that really interesting. I'm like, holy crap, I didn't even think of that because the loggerhead in the marsh is feeding on oysters and horseshoe crabs and things. That, it makes perfect sense. They're going to take some terrapins if they get the chance. <laughs> but
2: That's amazing. I had no idea.
1: That's that was
0: a good process of elimination there, though. Most people get yeah, thrown by that. Um. All right, I guess I've got one I can just throw to the – well, yeah, I don't know. So this is – so there's a species of hingeback tortoise in Madagascar, and it's endemic to a very small area, but what is that species?
1: Is this for both of us or for – I mean, I –
0: I don't know. I I, I figure that Jack is going to know this. (laughs) This might be a a tough one for you. I have an idea. This is not a study organism.
2: Yeah, I have no idea.
0: Okay. I mean, I can.
1: Is it? I know it connects to this, but what about in the subspecies? I know this is odd, but I don't remember the actual species. I feel like the subspecific epithet started with an N. Am I am I right right there? It starts with an N.
0: Does it? No the the subspecific epithet does not. It
1: starts with a D. What is it then? A D. I, what I'm thinking of something else then. I'm thinking of a different one.
0: Yeah, I think you. Are. I think you are. You're thinking of a natalensis.
1: About... Yeah, that's probably. This, yeah, this one is, is. Dumery
0: demergue It's the Madagascan hingeback. And What's the full so,
1: the full Latin name?
0: It was Belliana. I think it's Zombensis now, but it's it's fluctuated between Bell's hingeback and the East African hingeback, which is not Z- Zombensis. So or West yeah, that's, African. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it's one. Yeah, so the Zombensis or Belliana. I think it's Zombensis currently, but Zombensis Demergue. and they're just native to this small little island that's literally separated by, I think it's a hundred feet or a hundred meters of, of seaway. It's nosy, nosy Bay or nosy Follies, the island. And yeah, I
1: think I, I know that specific Island.
0: Yeah. And so there actually are some on the mainland, but it's unclear to me if they were, if they're actually native there, or if some people just brought them over, I'd guess that maybe they brought them over, but there's some that are there. So, yeah that was just an obscure one but i guess i think that's good for today we got some yeah that's good out. we each had a question that that was good that that the shell question that's that's a good one. we'll have to pull that on some other people i think
1: that's going to yeah, work that, that was i wasn't fun. expecting that at all that was a really that was a good question
0: all right well this that's has been, been right. awesome thanks for coming on evo uh this has been really fun and we i think we've learned a lot and, and, and good luck to you with your with your thesis project. It's it's very interesting. And I, I assume over the next few years you'll be kind of finishing that up or, or wrapping it up or what's the timeline?
2: Yeah, I mean I'm uh sending my proposal in the next couple of weeks. Um oh, yeah. and then um yeah, it's uh we just sort of have the you know, the first roadblock is getting the snip panel sort of working. But once uh once we've identified um, you know, kind of informative parts of the genome. Then it's yeah, it's only a matter of, of getting things sequenced and um and then a bit of you know a bit of computational magic to to get things moving. But uh, but yeah, definitely keep you guys abreast of uh, of anything that uh, that comes out of this. I mean, if we answer some of the questions that that you know that we all had today, that we that we talked about today. Um, yeah, happy to keep you guys posted um, and everyone posted, obviously. We're going to for be sure. We'd have to have
0: a in, in the future. Yes. That'd be, be back fun. on in the future all all a few years, Maybe more be, progress. Happy to be back. Absolutely. Be absolutely. Awesome. And we didn't even get to we were going to talk about tortoise translocations, but we just stuck ah. on terapins today. But we'll we'll get to that some other points And but thanks a ton yeah. for coming on. It's been it's been a pleasure uh talking with you. And uh, I've learned a lot, certainly. I think I speak for jack and it, uh, yeah. jason's getting mauled by some dogs so <laughs> i think that this is a good yeah. <laughs> this is a good place to leave it so uh from us here alive. the colonia cast uh thanks for tuning in on episode 13 and we'll see you in the next one so i gotta stop my recording here i've all right thanks everyone